Welcome to the last episode of uh, Season 10, Episode 12. After this week, uh, we're going to take a break, but the episode today is going to again be called Ethics, Laws, Values, and Trust. And it is a revisit of uh, an episode that I recorded in the last season, in Season 9, Episode 10. It's just that since then, I've learned quite a few quite a bit and uh, had new ideas, talked to people, I actually got a lot of requests to deliver this as a keynote. And during the preparation for keynotes, I, I added more content, more material, and I thought I'll share this with you. In fact, this coming Wednesday, I'm about to give a keynote in the uh, for the Institute for uh, Excellence in Corporate Governance. This is going to be the closing keynote uh, with this title, Ethics, Laws, uh, values and trust. And so I'm going to share exactly what I'm going to deliver this Wednesday. I'm going to share with you right after this. Welcome to The Trust Show. I'm Yoram Solomon, your host, the author of The Book of Trust and facilitator of The Trust Habits Workshop. My mission is simple. I want to help you form habits that build your trustworthiness because the answer to this question will have the biggest impact on your personal and professional success or failure. Can I trust you? Sometimes I refer to myself as not a best-selling author. And in fact, for a while in LinkedIn, my tagline included the words, not a best-selling author. But we're going to start with, I'm going to give you a tip here on how to become a best-selling author in 24 hours and for $10. And oh, by the way, without a book. Now, I need to qualify this. This is not going to be how to become a New York Times bestseller or a Wall Street Journal bestseller, uh, because those actually just cost more to become. Not that they're impossible, but I'm going to focus on how to become an Amazon bestselling author, which is what, unfortunately, most people, when they refer to themselves as bestselling authors, uh, they refer to themselves as Amazon best-selling authors. So without further ado, let's start step number one. Step number one is write a book. Now, having written 19 books, uh, I can tell you that it's it's quite a process. And um, you, you must be thinking to yourself, whoa, wait a minute, uh, writing a book, uh, that's not going to be easy. Well, I'll make it easy for you. Uh, actually, you don't need a book, as I said before. All you need is a PDF file because Amazon would only take PDF files. In fact, you need two PDF files, one for the content and one for the cover. The restrictions are really, really limited to uh, make sure that you have the right margins and the right size, uh, not so much about the content itself. The next part is you're going to have to categorize it in a the least uh, competitive category. So we categorize in the least, and, and I'll explain in a minute what does it mean to categorize your book in the least uh, competitive category. And the next thing is click publish. And once you click publish, you are going to have a book up on Amazon. Well, uh, the week that I created this presentation, the number one book overall, so this is, I want you to pay attention that it says in books overall, number one was the biography of Elon Musk by Walter Isaacson, which I 
did get. I actually didn't know that it was number one. I got the book because I read previous uh, uh, biographies by Walter Isaacson, uh, specifically the one about Steve Jobs, and, and they're riveting. So I figured I need to get this one. And right after getting this one, I looked at what ranks number one in Amazon overall, and I found that it's this book. Now, uh, that ranking translates into number of sales. And there is something that's called a BSR to sales calculator. And there are quite a few websites that have access to that information. And this is one of them. And so when I took, what does it mean to be number one best-selling overall in books? Uh, what it says is that uh, they're selling on average 10,553 books per day. 10,000 books per day and 158,000 books per month. Now, let me ask you this question. Would you consider that a best-selling book and the author of that book a best-selling author? Someone who sells more than 10,000 books per day. I'm going to go with yes. But this is uh, not a competitive category because uh, in order to take out number one, you're going to have to sell at least 10,554 books in one day. And that's not going to cost you $10. That's going to cost you a lot more than $10. But we're looking for a, a least competitive category. And one of those categories is bestsellers in fantasy, horror, uh, first of all, I'll pay. Uh, I'll focus you on it's a Kindle book now, and you'll see why it's important to be a Kindle book. The category is fantasy, horror, and science fiction in Japanese. And uh, note that it is that there is a book there in the, and I'm looking at the the list of the top 100 paid. You want to be in the top 100 paid and not the top 100 free because that doesn't count that much. You want to be paid. And so when I click on that uh, number one book, I go up there, and as you can see, uh, this Amazon says this is a bestseller. And oddly enough, uh, this book is actually the uh, Japanese translation of uh, The Little Prince. So it ranks number one in this category. But if we look at the bottom, at the details of this uh, product, of, the, of this book, what you're going to see is that it ranks overall in books number 357,000. Okay, it's number one in this category, the category of, uh, what was it? Fantasy, horror, and science fiction in Japanese. But it ranks number 357,000 or even lower than 357,000 uh, overall. Uh, now, what does that mean? Uh, we'll see in a second. By the way, a funny thing is that the only book of mine out of 19 books that ever got translated into a different language was the book Worst Died Ever, and it was translated into Japanese. What does it mean to be 358, uh, 357,000? Uh, the BSR rank says that uh, you have to be selling eight books per month. The number one book in this category, not overall, the number one book in this category sells eight books per month. So all you have to do to move this book away, even though your book has absolutely nothing to do with uh, fiction and horror and, uh, and uh, whatever in, in Japanese, uh, all you have to do is sell eight books, more than eight books per month.
So with that, we're going to go to step number two. Let's sell more than eight books per month. And what we're going to do first thing is we're going to reduce the price to 99 cents. This is why it's so important to do it on Kindle and not with a hard copy book, because on Kindle, you can go down to 99 cents and still be a paid book. You can't go to that price with a hard copy, with a soft, uh, soft cover. The next thing is uh, we're going to build a margin. So we're going to ask 10 of our closest friends to buy that book. Heck, you know what? We can reimburse them. And this is how we get to $10. Because if we don't have to reimburse them, it doesn't even cost us $10. So we can reimburse them. The next thing we're going to do is we're going to check the book ranking. We're going to wait until probably the ninth book is going to be bought because once the ninth book is going to be bought and this is where you're going to have to move really really quickly your book is going to be listed as number one now time is running out because uh, very quickly the other another book is going to do that or the first book is going to uh is going to get to number one so as soon as you see that you're number one and you get this indication uh that it's a bestseller take a screenshot of that and from this moment on you are a best-selling author and this is how the book of trust is a best-selling author actually it's not uh this is a complete fake all i did was just took a picture and integrated it with the uh same page same category uh but you know what uh isn't the original method kind of a fake as well so does it matter how do i fake it as long as uh, i get the number one bestseller from amazon well maybe it does what do we do with that? So now that we capture that screen and forever, we're going to have a screen that says that our book is a best-selling book. This is the number one book, of course, in the category of horror science fiction uh, in Japanese. Uh, we're going to go to LinkedIn. And on LinkedIn, we're going to mark that we are a best-selling author. And from that moment, I am a best-selling author. Am I? Am I really a best-selling author? What is the definition of a best-selling author? Oh, I'm glad you asked. Let's go to uh, one of eight different definitions that I found when I did that research. Uh, uh, the one from Britannica Encyclopedia. And their dictionary says that a best-selling bestseller uh, is a popular product, such as a book, that many people have bought. Many people have bought. 10 people buying it for 99 cents because I reduced the price and they're all friends of mine. Does that count? Does that meet the requirement of that category? I'm not sure. But here's another question for you. Would you consider somebody who sold eight books or more than eight books in a 24-hour period to their friends after lowering the price of 99 cents, would you consider them to be a best-selling author? Well, I think your answer really is that Amazon said I'm a best-selling author, right? If Amazon said I'm a best-selling author, then I must be a best-selling author. But here's the thing. Amazon is not saying that you are a best-selling author. They're not. Amazon said that you were a best-selling author in a specific category during those first 24 hours. That's what Amazon said. They're not saying it now. So maybe the right designation in the tagline in LinkedIn is going to be, I was an Amazon bestselling author in the fantasy, horror, and science fiction category in Japanese on September 20th of 2023. I was on that day 
in that category. I'm not a best-selling author right now. Now, why do we do that? We do that because this brings, this, this brings up our brand. And, and one of the best definitions that I found for the term brand comes from a very fa famous astronaut who said that your brand is what people say about you when you're not in the room. That's your brand. Your brand is a best as a best-selling author. But you know what, what he did not say, even though he is somewhat related to Amazon, he did not say that your brand is what Amazon says it is. Because I'll tell you what, you're subject to Amazon's algorithms and Amazon's decisions, and Amazon is a private company, well, public, but, but non-government uh, company. Uh, what do you do if Amazon decides to call you a racist? If based on whatever algorithm they call you a racist, does that mean that you're a racist? If they call you anything else, does that mean that they call you, that you are something else? What would someone who thought that a best-selling author is what really a best-selling author is, someone who sells a lot of books to people who do, don't know them, uh, not because you're asking them, uh, and not because you're lowering the price to 99 cents. What if somebody that thinks that's a best-selling author, think about you when they find out what you did? What would they think about you? I mean, talk about losing their trust. Now, I know, I know what you're thinking. You're thinking, well, yeah, that there are probably one or two people are doing that. N not everybody's doing that. Not a lot of people are doing that. So I did some research, and here's what I found. There is a database of all public speakers, professional speakers. Well, you, you get on that database. I'm on that database. And uh, there are about 20,000, probably north of 20,000 now, people on the database. And uh, out of them, I checked how many have the designation best-selling author in their title or somewhere in their description. And out of about 20,000, 1,800, so about 10%, 9-10% of those listed in eSpeakers actually indicated that they're best-selling authors. Out of those, we took a random sample of 106, really a random sample. And uh, to see what, uh, what have they done, are, how many of them are really best-selling author, the way at least the Encyclopedia Britannica defines best-selling author. Well, first of all, out of 106, only 66, or not only, 66 of them are only listed as Amazon best-selling authors, not Wall Street Journal, not New York Times, or in any other reputable place. What do you think was the average of their ranking? The average ranking. The average ranking was close to a million from the top. Out of the overall list, the highest, so this is not just the, the 66, this out of the 106, the highest was ranked at 1,623 location, which is not very bad, but only three out of the entire 106, and remember, 66 of them are only Amazon, but the other 40 are Wall Street Journal, New York Times. Only three out of all of them are selling, based on the BSR to sales calculator, are selling more than 10 books per month. But all 106 refer to themselves as best-selling authors. What are the consequences? What are the consequences of this practice? Well, first of all, it diminishes the, the distinction of best-selling authors. The best sellers are not best sellers if, if they can be used this freely and, and loosely. 
The second thing is it diminishes the values of the term itself. It lowers our collective ethical bar. And that hurts all of us. And, and I'll show you how. You know, um, <laughs> in the organization I'm going to speak at this Wednesday, two members of this organization served with me on a board. But I want to take you back to uh, when I moved to the U.S. in 98, I got into a company and, and I got to the point where I was really kind of managing the company. It was a tiny little company that developed intellectual property in the field of wireless, short-range wireless technologies, spread spectrum technologies, based on two standards called 802.11 and uh, 802.15.1. Any idea what those are? First one is more familiar to you as Wi-Fi, and the second one as Bluetooth. So we were working on intellectual property. This was uh, late 99 now, early 2000, right time, right place, Silicon Valley. And um, at that time, I was asked by a certain organization to serve on their board. This was an organization uh, dedicated to the licensing of intellectual property in general, semiconductor intellectual property. So I joined the board. Had no idea what the DNO insurance is, directors and officers insurance. I had no idea what this is. I just thought, you know, I was honored that I was asked. So I joined. We had no DNO insurance. And a month into me serving on the board, I realized that we are about to be sued personally, all the directors personally, by the management company that's managing the organization because we're not paying their bills, which is something that would have been nice to know when I accepted my role. It would be nice to know that we have no DNO insurance, it would be nice to know what DNO insurance was, and it would be nice to know that we're about to be sued, and it would be nice to know that we're not paying our bills. But I told you that I served on another board. I served on many boards, but I served on one board with two people who are going to be in the audience in this uh, event this coming Wednesday. And we were sitting on the board when somebody suggested that we change the DNO insurance policy to cover criminal negligence. I kid you not, to cover criminal negligence. Should we? Or should we not? Now, as I turn my discussion into talking about ethics and laws, uh, first I need to uh, tell you that I'm going to touch on several laws of trust, of how trust behave. Remember, my starting point is trust. And over the years, I have observed eight laws of trust. I didn't create them. I didn't invent them. I didn't set them. I observed them. And these are the eight laws, and I'm not going to spend time on them. I'm going to focus on three, and I'm going to start with one. Trust law number eight. Trust is a two-person game. Trust has two sides. And what do I mean by that? You know, we think about trust as if, I, if you're trustworthy, then I will trust you. But in fact, the level of trust that I have in you is the product of my trustfulness, my willingness to trust other people, and your trustworthiness. Your trustworthiness is not enough. Both your, you have to be trustworthy and I have to be willing to trust people. I'll tell you a story. Those two fine young people were my parents when they got married. In uh, December of 1964, my mother was eight months pregnant with me. 
My father started suffering severe pains in what appeared to be his kidney. He was hospitalized when uh, they told them that he has big kidney stones to the point where they can't be removed. The entire kidney has to be removed. The kidney was removed. He was doing fine after that for 30 more years before he passed away from something different. When he passed away, we set what's called in Hebrew Shiva for seven days. We set mourning in his house when my mother was starting to go through paperwork, going all the way back to that December of 1964, when he was hospitalized and his kidney was removed for kidney stones. Well, I should add that about a year before he passed, my mother had cancer. She had breast cancer, which she survived at, at that time. And when she read through the paperwork, all of a sudden she started recognizing some of the terminology back from December of 1964 as terminology related to cancer. Now, uh, her sister-in-law was a very close uh, family member, and she was around that hospital that time. She was probably there all the time, I don't remember, because my mother was still eight months pregnant with me. And so my mother called her and asked her, back in December of 64, when my husband, my late husband, uh, had his kidney removed, did the doctors ever talk to you? And she said, yes. Remember two things. One is this is way before HIPAA, and two, this is in Israel, not here. The old times. My mother asked her, did the doctors tell you that what he had was kidney cancer? And she said, yes. And then my mother asked, why didn't they tell us? And my aunt said, well, um, the doctor came to me and he said, look, what you, you look like a close family member. Uh, let me tell you, he has kidney cancer. We're going to have to remove the kidney for kidney cancer. Now, he's in pain. He's in no shape to take this kind of news. She's eight, my, eight months pregnant, my mother. Uh, she's in no shape to take this news. Should I tell them? What do you think? You look like a very close family member. Again, no HIPAA. She said, no. I'll tell them when the time is right. Now, you would think that sometime in the next 30 years, an opportunity would show itself to let her tell my mother and us. But when you think about how many times did my sister and I, in the 29 years since he had his kidney removed due to kidney cancer and until he, uh, my mother had uh, cancer, you would think that there would be an opportunity to tell us. Why did I tell you that? I don't trust people. I have issues with trusting people. And that's one of the reasons why. See, we are the sum of our experiences. And when we had experiences that cause us to not trust people, we don't trust all people and not necessarily just a specific person. It affects all of it. You know, let's look at some statistics, 2023 spam spe statistics specifically. Now, I'm going to ask you, and, and I'm going to give you a little time to, to try and guess. The first question, what percentage of emails in 2022 were spam? Any idea? 56.5%. Question number two, how much does email spam cost businesses? Over $20 billion a year. 
What percentage of spam is identity theft? 73%. What percentage of spam emails is marketing and advertising? You're marketing to people who don't care. 36%. And here is my favorite. Which country in the world do you think generates the most spam emails? And remember, a big part of it is identity theft and uh, other types of fraud and scams and, and marketing and all. Which country in the world? Yeah, it's not Iran. It's not Russia. It's not China. It's not North Korea. It's the good old United States of America. The United States of America generates 8.6 billion spam emails per day. What does that do? It reduces trustfulness. And when it reduces trustfulness, it reduces trust. And I want you to keep in mind that it's easy to say, well, other people are doing that, but few can give a bad name to all of us. And it all starts with a little thing. It's time to start talking about the ethical bar and the legal bar. So first of all, I want you to think about all the actions that you can take, all the things that you can say, and I want you to rank them from the absolute worst in the bottom to the absolute best in the top. So the worst would be what? Fraud, genocide. Those would be the worst things in the bottom. And the best thing in the top, well, some of the things that you do are the best things. When you volunteer, when you put others in front of ahead of yourself, when you serve in the military and put your country ahead of yourself. Whatever it is, top, green, best, bottom, red, worst. And somewhere, let's just call it a third way from the bottom, is where the legal bar is. And somewhere there, let's say another third, is where the ethical bar is. Let me compare what they are. So the legal bar is clear. It's written. It's typically written in the, in the form of the law, a document. Now, we can argue that some laws are not very clear, but in general, it is a lot clearer than the ethical bar that resides in our heads. The ethical bar is vague. It is value-dependent. The next part is that the law is equally applied to everyone within its jurisdiction. If you're in Texas, if you're in the city of Richardson, where the event is going to be in, on Wednesday, you are subject to the U.S. Constitution, you are subject to the U.S. federal laws, you are subject to the Texas Constitution, and you are subject to the Texas laws, but you are also subject to the Richardson Ordinances. These are the laws, and they applied equally to every person. Our ethical bar is personal. Our ethical bar is relative. And as I said, it's value dependent. It depends. My ethical bar depends on my values. Your ethical bar depends on your values. The legal bar, the punishment, the, the, the consequences of violating the legal bar, of operating below the legal bar, are extrinsic. They're artificial. They're not the natural outcome of performing what you did, the, the illegal act. It's because the law says that this is what will happen to you. It's an artificial connection between the crime 
and the punishment. Whereas violating the ethical bar, the consequence is intrinsic. It is the natural outcome. You do something and it is the the direct consequences of that that will affect you. Here's a question for you. What would you call the area in between? Below the ethical bar, above the legal bar. I'll give you a second. What do you call the area in between? Well, those are the things that you know you shouldn't do. It doesn't feel right to do them. They are below your ethical bar. They're below your values, but they're not illegal. We call them loopholes. We call them the gray area. We have many names for them. Now, here's a question for you. Is your code of ethics, assuming that you have code of ethics, is this the ethical bar? I mean, it does have the word ethics in it, or is it really the legal bar? Let's look at the characteristics of your code of ethics. First of all, it's clear. It's written. Sounds like legal bar to me. Second, it's equally applied to everyone within the organization. So if the organization this Wednesday does have a code of ethics, then it applies to all members. The consequences are extrinsic. What would the consequences be of violating the code of ethics? Probably removal from the organization or something like this. It is extrinsic. Your code of ethics is actually the legal bar, even though it has the word ethics in it. So let's talk about the ethical bar in this case. And again, I'm going to go back to uh, trust law number three. Trust is personal. And and a question I'll ask you is, uh, do you want to be trusted by everyone? And maybe a better question is, can you be trusted by everyone? Some of you may remember this. I don't know if you remember, but uh, do you know who was the first person to be named the most trusted men in America? I'm sorry they asked about men, not person, not women, but that, that was the designation. The most trusted men in America. Anybody? Yeah. 1972, there was a poll and that name came out. Walter Cronkite. Walter Cronkite was the most trusted man in America. Based on a poll that was actually comparing uh, presidential candidates and, uh, and governor and, and other candidates. It was comparing them and at the last minute somebody decided to throw in Walter Cronkite and Walter Cronkite came on top with not 100%, but 73% even though we called him the most trusted man in America. Okay, anybody heard of the website called Rate My Professors? <laughs> yeah, so um, I, my, my younger daughter, when she went to college, I noticed one day when she was signing up for classes that she was, um, she was going to this website called Rate My Professors where there are anonymous reviews of different professors, different classes, uh, to help other students decide if they should choose this class with this professor or not. And I thought, this is brilliant. But wait a minute. I'm a professor at SMU. Do I have a page on Rate My Professors? So we checked. And I do. And then I looked at the first review and the first review said, Professor Solomon is awesome. I really enjoyed his class and lectures. If you're... I am awesome. (laughs) I know, I'm awesome. Well, Now, you think I'm showing you this or telling you this to brag? By the way, I got five out of five on this. Um, 
Well, actually, my main reason was to brag. No, it wasn't. It wasn't to brag and it wasn't to recruit you to SMU, even though SMU this last week uh, by Bloomberg was uh, named the number 27th MBA program nationwide, which is amazing. No, I'm not trying to recruit you. I'm trying to show you the next review. Get ready for some vulnerability. Don't worry. It's not yours. It's mine. Here's the next review. Next review says this course, one out of five. This course was mostly about his own accomplishments rather than a broader view of peer-reviewed uh, techniques of success. His attitude was arrogant, condescending, but he's an easy grader, which is what's important in college, right? Why am I showing you these two? Well, if I put them one next to the other, you're going to see that one of them was posted November 20th of 2019. The other was posted November 30th, 10 days later, 2019. Now, this is 2019, so it's before COVID, so there's no hybrid, there's no Zoom. This was in a class. Now, I only teach one semester per class, so these two students sat in the same classroom at the same time. Now, by the way, part of posting the review is telling you what, what uh, grade you think you're going to get, and even the one that gave me one out of five believed that they're going to get an A, so it wasn't about the grade. These two students sat in the same classroom at the same time I was being the same person. How come? How come they're so different? And this is where I'm going to touch on the elephant in the room. And the elephant in the room is that until now, you were told that there is a specific, finite list of things that will make you trusted. And each one of them is going to be either good or bad, absolutely and universally. And if you can check all of them as good, then you're going to be trusted. And if you check all of them as bad, or many of them as bad, then you're not going to be trusted, period. Universal and absolute. So let me ask you, is procrastination good or bad? Are you a procrastinator? Well, let's look at procrastination. Procrastination is bad. I mean, heck, just go and put the word procrastination on Google. You're going to find all kinds of articles on how to stop procrastinating, how to be cured from procrastinating. By the way, same thing if you go to Amazon and look for books on procrastination. Same things. It's all bad. Why is it bad? It's bad because you may need more information. You don't have access to it anymore. It's too late to get something. Schedule gets pulled in. You get stressed over uh, deadlines. Life happens and all of a sudden you can't do what you're supposed to do. Um, you forget about it. Okay, that, that was my attempt on New York accent. Never mind. And there are consequences. So procrastination is bad, right? Or is it? Well, I'll tell you what. Uh, when you procrastinate, you get more ideas. You have better alternatives. You get new information. Ideas get to incubate in your head. Sometimes ideas need that to be sitting in your head for a while. Uh, you get more people to ask. You get more advice. Projects get canceled or schedules get pushed out. You want to be the person that finished your assignment and then the, the project got canceled and things change. You, you know, by the, from the time you finished your part of the project, things may have changed and your part is irrelevant anymore. I don't know if you noticed, by the way, but I had seven bad points and eight good bullets. Well, I am a procrastinator, but I'll tell you a story. There was a very famous speaker that was going to give a very important speech. And the thing is that he was a procrastinator. And even though he wrote the speech, he still didn't feel quite good. And the night before giving that speech, a friend of him said, hey, you know what? What about such and such? And when he heard her say that, he went, man, I have an idea. And on the car ride to the event before speaking, 
He added three words. Actually, it wasn't even to the beginning of the speech. It was to the beginning of the last part of that speech. He added three words that didn't exist an hour before he got on stage to give his speech. Those three words were, I have a dream. Yes. Is procrastination good or bad? Well, the answer is it doesn't matter. Because here's the thing. Procrastinators will trust procrastinators. Non-procrastinators will trust non-procrastinators. Now, procrastinators will trust non-procrastinators. They have no reason not to. I mean, you want to finish your job early? Fine, do that. I don't. But non-procrastinators will not trust procrastinators. And by the way, I just showed you one more thing, and that is that trust is asymmetrical. So not everything is black and white. Some things are just different. But why? They're different because we are all different. We're different in our DNA. We're different in where we were born, where we grew up, where we live and where we work. It's different. We're different in where we went to school. And because of that, the same behavior that can cause one person to trust you could cause another person to distrust you. And as I said, I already demonstrated to you that trust is also asymmetrical, which is trust law number four. Let's go back to the ethical bar and the legal bar. And this time, I'm going to focus on you. This is your ethical bar. Okay, we're going to move it to the side. And then we're going to bring in me. And I have my own ethical bar that, for argument's sake, is lower than yours. Now, I think we can both agree that anything below my ethical bar, we're going to both say those are bad values. We share the fact that those are bad values. We share the fact that we call them bad values. And let's also agree that everything above your ethical bar, which is higher than mine, is good. And we both agree that those are, we both share the fact that those are good. But in between them are the values that because of them, if I behave there, you're not going to behave there because your ethical bar is higher than those. I may behave there because they're above my ethical bar, but this is going to be the area where you're not going to trust me because I'm behaving in a way that is below your ethical bar. So, you know, there are certain things that when you do, like when you game the system, some people are going to appreciate that and go, this is a great idea. This is how I can become a best-selling author. This is a great idea. And they're going to appreciate you for that and trust you. While other people are going to say, no, this is not right. This is not what people think a best-selling author is. And if you behave that way, they will not trust you. They will not respect you. In one of my studies, one of the things that I found was that the highest correlation to trust was the fact that we share values with 86% correlation. Now, values drive the position of the ethical bar. And it's simple because your ethical bar is where your values are, because if you behave below that, you behave below your values, your own values. When values erode, so does your ethical standard. Let's talk about the erosion of the ethical bar. First of all, why would it erode? Well, it would erode because of unusual circumstances, and that's unintentional. You know, you didn't know that what you're doing was violating an, an ethical, your own ethical bar. 
Mostly it happens because of cognitive bias. You convince yourself that I had no choice. You find your own justification. Uh, sometimes it is intentional. It is conscience. It's, it's a temptation. It's other people are doing this. It's peer pressure. Examples, fraud, told you about that. High pressure sales, that's I call this spam. Psychological manipulation, again, spam. Alternative facts. And so what happened in 2000, 2001? Well, these happened. Now, although some of what these companies did was illegal, a lot of it was not, not at the time. It was unethical, but it wasn't illegal. How do lawmakers react? What did they do in response to Enron and, uh, and all the others? What did they do? That's right, they created Sarbanes-Oxley of 2002. And then they start creating all kinds of stupid laws. Well, not only because of that, and I'm going to give you a few examples. Uh, I don't know if you knew that, but in Oklahoma and Ohio, you can't make faces on it at a dog. That's the law. In Florida, it is illegal to sing in your swimsuit. In Arizona, you can't have a donkey sleeping in your bathtub after 7 p.m. Actually, the jury is still out on this one because I find places where it says that it is a law and I find places where it says that it doesn't. But all the rest, I actually did check. Kansas, it's illegal to serve ice cream on cherry pie. In California, it's uh, against the law to eat an orange while taking a bath. You would have to wonder what makes lawmakers create this law. In Alabama, it's illegal to drive while blindfolded. You'd think that you don't need a law for this. In Arkansas, it is illegal to sound your horn at any place where cold drinks or sandwiches are served after 9 p.m. I know, you think that I'm kidding? Well, here is, uh, oh, in Georgia, it's illegal to consume fried chicken by any means other than with your hands. And if you think that I'm kidding, then uh, let me show you. Uh, this is from uh, Arkansas, the Arkansas, I'll call it the Code of Ordinances, where it actually says no person shall sound a horn on a vehicle at any place where cold drinks or sandwiches are served after 9 p.m. And in Florida, <laughs> Florida is a nice one, uh, apparently there is a prohibition, no person or persons over 16 years of age shall, while wearing a mask, hood, or device, whereby any portion uh, of their face be hidden, concealed, or covered as to conceal their identity, enter upon or be appeared upon any lane, walk, alley, street, road, highway, or any public way in this state, which would make it pretty challenging during COVID. Back to the ethical bar and the legal bar. And let me ask you a question. When the government, when lawmakers are starting to make laws that don't make sense and they raise the, the legal bar, could there be a point where the ethical bar would go so low and the legal bar would go so high that you, that the, the legal bar would actually be higher than the ethical bar? Let me ask you this. Is there any behavior, illegal behavior, that you would still consider it legitimate and ethical? Is there? Well, I'll help you. Did you ever drive faster than the speed limit? Than what's in the sign? You did. It's illegal. You know it's illegal. You did it anyway. It, you didn't feel that it was below your values to do it. 
Well, there are unintended consequences. The first is that we relegate our ethical standards to the government. The second one is that illegal is no longer unethical. And that's a problem. I want to touch on one more phenomenon, and that's unfortunately we have a culture of sound bites. So this is taken out of Twitter or X now. Simon Sinek, uh, very successful, but he wrote this, and this is a direct s- screenshot. Uh, we don't trust people to follow the rules. We trust people to know when to break them. Once again, let's go to the dictionary. This time we're going to Merriam-Webster, and the definition of anarchy includes the absence or denial of any authority or established order. Is that not what he was suggesting? Should we be allowed to break the laws? Are there times when you can break the law? And how do you know if you can break the law? The first question you have to ask yourself is, are you willing to accept the consequences? Or you're just going to break it but not accept the consequences? Are you okay if I break the law that was created to protect you? Because this is what you might be doing to me. The next question is when rules can't be broken. Remember the movie A Few Good Men when Colonel Jessup says, uh, we follow orders, son. Uh, We follow orders or people die. It's that simple. You just heard from a major general and an admiral in this conference today. Uh, Does it make sense that we let the military personnel during an operation, during war, to break the rules, to break the chain of command, to to, uh, refuse commands? How about air traffic controller? How about letting planes decide where they're going to fly? Forget what air traffic controller said. I'm going to fly where I think I should fly. Rules provide predictability. And we have to remember that. And when you think about, can I break the law because it doesn't make sense to me, ask yourself what uh, Chesterton asked in 1929. Do not remove a fence until you know why it was put there in the first place. There is another element of fairness and therefore trust, because fairness is one of the components of trust. If I'm following the rules and you're not, it gives you a competitive advantage. Let's say that you and I are driving to an interview. We start at the same point. I maintain the speed limit. I don't drive faster than the speed limit, but you don't, because to you it's ethical to go above it. They will essentially take the first person who walks in through the door. Should you get the job simply because you're willing to break the law? Now, uh, maybe you're breaking the law because, or I'm breaking the law because I can afford it, but you can't. How is that fair? Is it okay when most people do that? What about minorities? I mean, is it enough? Is it a good justification to say, but everybody does that? Well, not everybody. Most people do that. A few people don't, and they're the minority. But the fact that we're breaking it, we're putting the minority in an uncompetitive disadvantage. Is that fair? So I'm going to leave you with how do we stop it? How do we stop the erosion of the ethical bar? So the first thing is we don't do that by creating a code of ethics. Creating a code of ethics, and I already told you that a code of ethics is the legal bar, not 
the ethical bar, even though it has the word ethics, it's not by creating another code of ethics. That's just raising the legal bar. That's delegating uh, your ethics and your values, delegating them to a piece of paper. It's not done by shaming someone who violates, who has a lower ethical bar by, uh, than you. Because when you shame someone, you're turning a villain into a victim. It's done through education. You educate them. You explain why. And it's really, it's up to each and every one of us, personally. This is it. This is the end of the episode. Uh, this Wednesday, I'm going to deliver that as a closing keynote in the IECG event. Uh, this is the last episode of the season. It's episode 12 of season 10. Next week is a week off. There's not going to be a new episode. To remind you, I'm recording 12 episodes per season, taking one week off, and then starting the next one. I'm going to guess that in the next season, season 11, a, a large portion of the time is going to be spent on the trust premium uh, and how being tr a trustworthy salesperson or any professional helps create a premium and help people select you over others. Um, this is going to be back in the first week of October, but this is it for today. This is The Trust Show. What would you like to know about trust and trustworthiness? Let me know and I'll answer it in a future episode. I would love to hear from you. Email me at yoram at thetrustshow.com. If you like this episode, subscribe to the show so you will automatically get notified when I release a new episode. Rate it. Write a review for this podcast because those ratings help not only you, but also others looking for podcasts just like this. If you're looking for more resources to learn about how to build trust, be trusted, or know who to trust, look up my workshops, online courses, books, or go to my website, trusthabits.com. And remember that the answer to these two questions will have the biggest impact on your personal and professional success or failure. Can I trust you? And can you trust me? Thank you for listening or watching The Trust Show.